You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Julia Brock, Assistant Professor of History and the Director of Public History Concentration at the University of Alabama. And we're also speaking with Dr. Stephanie Shalifo, Assistant Professor, Associate Professor of History at West Georgia, who studies gender and sexuality in the South. We're speaking with them today at the LES Center and talking about their project, which they started in 2016, of cataloging items at the center. So we will talk about actually their project. We'll talk about Lillian Smith. We'll talk about Lillian Smith's siblings and more. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Y'all have been up to the camp, I don't know how many times since I've been here. I started in 2019 and probably at least once or twice every year. And you've actually brought students up here to help in the project. So let's just get started with that because you've come up here, like I said, to the center on your own and with your students to help catalog the vast majority of items that we have still at the camp. Because of her papers are at UGA and at the University of Florida and elsewhere, but there's still so much kind of material here that aren't just papers, but that are everything. So can you describe this project a little bit? And specifically, how did each of you come to work on cataloging the items here at the LES Center? And how have students reacted to being at the center and working within the space? Yeah, thank you so much. I, this is Julia speaking, and I was a um, resident here first. So I first came here as a resident in 2010, and I would try to come often. And one thing that struck me about the, you know, unique space that that this is, is that the Smith family material culture surrounds you here. So tapestries, books, curios, artwork, all of that makes gives this center a, a sense of place. And as a public historian, I was interested in uh, providing a service to the center of, of documenting that. That's how I started to imagine this project, is, is helping the center sort of understand everything that was here. So um, I went to the director at the time, Craig Amison, and offered to do that, and he took me up on it. So that's how we began. Soon after that, I got a job at the University of West Georgia, and I met Stephanie Shalfu. Yeah. Julia and I uh, became close friends. We, we both have similar interests in terms of um, the U.S. history, the South, but also both of us have an affinity for Lillian Smith. Um, quite a lot of respect for her work. Um, uh, we read a lot of her stuff, and so uh, Julia asked if I wanted to join this project, and I eagerly said yes. Um, and then the first time I uh, came up here with Julia in 2016, we brought uh, four students, I believe, and um, we began, um, uh, we started with the common room and began to go through all those material collections and document them, tag them, um, mostly just to keep, uh, to, to understand what is here and to look for, you know, some themes and, um, and just to get a sense of, of what did the Smith family collect and why? Um, and so that, that's been a really, uh, I think a great part um, is the discovery process. Yeah. 
there's so many things I've discovered up here, like a Victorian era handheld kind of like viewfinder yeah. with like slides that's in the common room. But you mentioned too that y'all had known about Lillian Smith before you even came up here. So when were you introduced to Lillian and how did that journey kind of start? I wish I had been introduced to her earlier, but it wasn't until I was a graduate student actually that I read Killers of the Dream. And so that was my first introduction. And then I sort of stumbled into, you know, using Google or whatever, knowledge that this space existed, which was really exciting. Yeah, um, very similar experience. Uh, I had not read, um, I, I think I'd heard her name, but I had not read anything. Mm -hmm. And in a graduate level class, uh, one of the professors assigned Killers of the Dream. And uh, I, was, I, I was immediately drawn um, to her life and her work. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was sort of a great experience, but yeah, I wish I had read, um, I wish I had been introduced sooner, but um, at some point it, it's better than never, you know? Exactly, and see, that's kind of like me. I came across her, never heard about her in undergrad or in grad school, and then came across her in a book sale, and I thought she was an African-American author because it was Strange Fruit that I picked mm -hmm. up. So I thought it was dealing with interracial intimacy, and I put it on the shelf, right? And then I didn't read it till later, and I was like, oh. And then, of course, when I got this position, I started doing more digging. I was like, oh, why haven't I heard about her? And it's important to hear about her. So that leads us to kind of the second part of that, because you mentioned you brought four students up here in mm -hmm. 16 or whatever year. And I've been up here when you brought groups of students up here, too. What's kind of their reaction to learning about her? Because these are, are these grad students or are these undergrad or are these both? both? Okay. Yeah, both. We had a mixture. I, um, they, before we brought them, we wanted them to learn something about Lillian Smith that they did not already know. So we did ask them to um, not necessarily have to read Killers of the Dream, but we asked them to, um, at the very least, Google her, right? N know a little bit about um, who she is and what this place was when she was here. Um, and every time we bring students, we sit and we watch um, Miss Lil's Camp, the video, because it's so great. Um, so the students, I think were, it, it was a sense of fascination. Um, they, they were excited about being here. They, I think, began to develop an affinity for Smith and her work, um, and I think fell in love with it just like we did and, and took it very seriously what we were doing and, and found this place to feel very sacred. And they just loved the space, you know, they, um, we don't work them, you know, till, you know, for hours upon hours. So they have time to just walk the grounds, hike a little bit, and just get a sense of, of this place overall. And part of it's looking at the stuff that's actually here, too. Yeah. Not just yeah. cataloging it, but actually looking at it and appreciating it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so we, you know, we want to instill in them a sense of, of stewardship. And most of them are public history students. Some aren't, but most are. So we want to instill in them a sense of stewardship and service. Obviously, we want to train them in museum cataloging techniques. But yeah, we also want them to become sort of um, uh, enchanted with the process mm -hmm. of discovery, which happens here. Yeah, every time I come up here, there's something new we found. Like we were just looking yeah. at Esther's cabin, <laughs> and I've looked in the boxes and saw her slides, but we found the letters that people sent her when she got her honorary doctorate. So that kind of leads me to another question, too, because we were talking before we started recording that it's not just Lillian Smith that I think is important. And that's something I've kind of come across. But I don't have the time to dig into everybody else's life because, one, there's not a lot on them specifically like Lillian because she was a national and international figure, right? But Esther in Western Maryland, Anna Laurie in Memphis, Frank here in Rabin, Bertie and Eugene Barnett in China and Asia, I mean the whole family has this kind of connection 
maybe not as expounded as Lillian Smith's, but they were all important in their own right. And can you kind of talk about what going through Anna Laurie's cabin, going through Esther's cabin, even finding things about Paula, because Paula is also an individual who we need to expand our knowledge about and expand our understanding about within the context, not just of Lillian Smith, but I would say within a broader context, historical context. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of get us rolling, I think one thing that has become absolutely clear to us is in looking at the kind of material culture of everyday life, which was preserved here, what you really get is a sense that this space was a space of extended family and kinship networks. Mm -hmm. So of course it was also the kind of, um, you know, shelter in which Lillian and Paula did their intellectual work. But after the camp closed, this became a domestic space for family and friends mm -hmm. and, and really extended kinship networks. And I think that's something that we've become really interested in. Um, in terms of what we discovered about the sisters themselves, especially because we, you know, we haven't gone, obviously that we're working in the cabins which were home to the sisters after, um, you know, through the 70s and even into the 80s, but you know, what do you think about discovery of the sisters? I, I think one of the things that we discovered is that while Lillian Smith is the, the sort of center, um, her siblings were mm -hmm. very accomplished, as you noted, Matt. Um, but the sisters themselves, Esther and Annie Laurie, uh, had honorary degrees. They had careers mm -hmm. um, of their own. They were very well prestigious careers. Very yes, and even and even Annie Laurie's daughter. Yeah, and yes. Peeler, right. whose uh, scientific equipment is in the Peeler cottage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we're just. I think because there is so little written on the siblings, that has been a fun part of the discovery process is realizing um, how important their work is as well and for us to maybe have a better understanding overall um, of these siblings and um, how they all connect and, and the work that they did and, and what this means in the larger context. So here's kind of a question that I'm kind of interested in. Have you found much of Paula here? Because I haven't. You know, what's interesting about that is just as we were starting our work yesterday, as residents will know, the sisters left behind photo albums. And right. we can talk about those separately. But one in, in um, Esther's cottage, there's a photo album from, you know, pictures from the late 70s and right. 80s. And Paula is in them. Paula, as an older woman, I think she died in 1985, mm -hmm. is there arranging flowers. And they're these very sort of, um, warm portraits of her, clearly these really beautiful portraits of her. And so what that says to me is that she obviously had um, continued connection with this place. They welcomed her here. There were relationships continuing on with the sisters in some way. But other than that, um, you know, I think we found a few letters that mentioned Paula that maybe weren't included with Lillian Smith's archives at UGA in the, um, in the museum now, but yeah. Not as much. Well, I mean, there's things there's things down there of Paula's artwork. I mean, there's sketches yeah. down in the common room yeah. that she was doing. So I think it's it's really interesting, and I think that she lived up here too as well, didn't yeah. she? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she was part of this connection too, and of course Frank lived in the house where the Johns live now. Right. So they and were. So did all, so did little Laurie. Right. So yeah. they were all up here. I think that's a really interesting thing to think about is the kinship connections and the connections that continue after her, because you mentioned that. Yeah. But that also makes me think too about the safe space and the intellectual space that this provides too of who all came up here even when Lillian was alive, right? right. And who may have come up after she passed away. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that's all kind of important and interesting thing. And one other thing that we found down there that somebody pointed out last week when we did the professional development camp is the cookbooks down there, which is nothing y'all catalog yet, but there's actually, I think, Lily and maybe Esther's writing in there about like recipes that they're doing and everything. Yeah. There's like the first Betty Crocker cookbook and like all this type of stuff. I mean, down we, there. as you know, we could write a whole uh, book on the linens that oh, were yeah. there. I mean, this space is a space of entertaining, you know, that they took very seriously the kind of ways that you entertained in that era, which were sometimes kind of formal, like even from the tiny, you know, port glasses to the punch bowls that are lined and, you know, rattan or not rattan, but, but some kind of wicker, you know, I mean, it's really kind of an interesting to see them as the way they hosted in this space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because it, it is a space of, of intellectual development, and but it's also a domestic space. Right. Um, and That's the right. cookbooks, the the um, all the dishes, the linens, the napkins, it all does reflect on what their lives were, what they did, um, perhaps just on a daily basis, right? The, the minutia, right? So it's not just about these wonderful accomplishments and the books that they published or anything. It's also about just what their daily lives were here. Yeah, which leads me to kind of this question, too, which I think is kind of a, a fun question, but what is the one artifact or artifacts that stand out to you that you kind of discovered here that you think about? Well, we could I could say so much on that. I mean, I <laughs> What remember, are a few of them? Okay, I remember um, finding the Rolodex with you, Matthew, the Rolodex. Oh, but we found with, that together? Yeah, because we had not gone in... Her, her bedroom was shut off, oh. to, you know, for our work, and that's fine, because it's, it, you know, so when you became director, I think we, we went in there with you and found that students found, just tucked away in a little curio box, a great pin that said SNCC. So it was like clearly just a small button, you know, that you would wear at a protest or something, which I loved. Where was that at? I haven't seen that. I'll show it to you. It's in, the, it's in yes. one of the bureaus down in the common area. Okay. I think is it the one with the hands together? The no, it's just a tiny little button. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and those are, I mean, that's the, the fun little discoveries. Um, the other thing that, uh, not a particular item, but something that's been very important uh, has been what they collected on their travels, and particularly Lillian. Um, seeing travel was very important to her. Um, going to different countries gave her a very... Um, unique sense of ideas of race, of culture, of society, and so seeing what she chose to bring back mm -hmm. on her many travels I think has been um, one of the most important things that for me that I've discovered. So it's not always just one particular item, although the Rolodex by far is probably the coolest thing um, because it has MLK's um, phone number in it. Right. It has yeah. like three addresses for him. Yeah. And you know, the other thing this gets me thinking about everything too. I need to look up and see if Esther's in there because talking about the family and especially Esther, I found out that she lived on Auburn Avenue like in the 40s. Like when they had, when they had the interracial gathering up here in 43, yeah. the address that um, Mary Church Terrell has for her is Auburn Avenue. And the address that Lil has for her to send her the invitation is Auburn Avenue. And that is I think a really kind of important thing too and how much she was connected with that area as well in Atlanta. But I also wonder too about where some of those things come from because I know she never went to Africa. Yeah. So who brought those pieces back? I know she went to South America. Right. But, mm -hmm. that's and even those, for me, even finding out those stories about their travel to, um, I don't know if I told y'all this, but she, this was in Joan Titus's kind of things when Joan Titus was interviewing her. 
when her and Paula went to South America and went to Brazil, they couldn't come back. I forgot what happened, but they had to get passage back on a Norwegian freight ship. So everybody spoke Norwegian, and it was just the two of them as women. And the captain wouldn't let him change clothes for three days and a bunch of other stuff. So they came back up to the States in a, on a Norwegian freighter. Wow. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, I've yeah. never heard that story. That's so it's, it's in Joe Titus's paper. But it's really, I mean, there's so much that we don't know, even about those travels. Because he went to Canada, too. I still want to know what she did in Harlem when she was teaching students piano in mm -hmm. 1927 when she was at Columbia. There's just all these kind of gaps, even with Lillian, that, mm -hmm. you know, we don't know. Yeah, and the objects have incomplete biographies. Exactly. So there's a lot of research to be done to understand really what's here. Yeah, I mean, I was looking in, I, th I think it's a liquor case. I mean, basically, mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but it's a case in the common room. Mm -hmm. Open up, it's all the Christmas decorations, and there's this huge box of Christmas cards. You know, there's Christmas cards from Carl Menninger. There's Christmas cards from Polly Murray. There's all of this type mm -hmm. of stuff. Okay, so that leads me to another one of my favorites, which is they loved assemblages. Assemblages of flowers, assemblages mm -hmm. of cards, of furniture, and you can see that in the pictures they took of the place. And you can see that I think that that maybe why Hattie still does the flowers whenever you come into the cabinet. yeah. But that they're, in all the albums, you can they 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 take, take pictures of the assemblages they create. Yeah. And, and it it gives you a sense of some of the meaning of those objects and things. But yeah, there's always these great sort of layout Christmas cards um, that you see in these images that come up every holiday. So, in Hal Jacobs' documentary, Hal and Henry Jacobs' documentary, mm -hmm. you're interviewed, mm -hmm. Julia, and you're talking about the interracial gatherings up here, which I mentioned, which mm -hmm. I asked, there still needs to be more research done on that. I really yeah. dug into the 43 gathering, which yeah. is, a, I think, the most important one because of who she had up here. But you talk about those, and you call them a literary salon, which I kind of agree with you about. So, can you and Stephanie speak about those gatherings, or anything you may know about them. And as well, can you talk about the ways that this space, you've kind of touched on it, that this space embodies and carries on that legacy of a literary salon and the space for social change? Well, I mean, honestly, what I know about it comes from secondary scholarship, like the Helen White Reading Suggs book, right, where they include some of her autobiographical writings on those gatherings, Lillian Smith's autobiographical writings on those gatherings. But the way that she describes those is really bringing together people for fellowship but for discussion of ideas, um, even difficult topics, but they also went hiking together, camping together, swimming together. They went swimming in that pool in September. That spring-fed pool in September. Oof. That was brisk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but maybe you got the synapses firing. Yeah, well, one of the letters I saw, she was writing to, um, to uh, oh, I forgot her name, but the director of Camp Marywood, because she invited her for that 43, but she couldn't come. And then there was a follow-up saying what we did, and she was like, yeah, some of us went swimming in the pool, and that's a spring-fed pool in the mountains. And in September. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's, uh, to sort of get to the second part of the question about connecting it to the, the space today, you know, I think the space as a residency space, I mean, we've been talking about this, I think, in coming up here every year, the way that, you know, of course, we're working on this project, but we, we do think the material culture lends itself to this sort of mnemonic agency, so that when you're here, you're kind of in the residue of the past created by Lillian Smith and her sisters and networks, right? And you sort of step into that in a way. I mean, at it, 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 the very least, it's inspirational or aspirational. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Julia could not have said it any better. Yeah, yeah. So 
Absolutely. Um, and I love the idea of the literary salon. I, I think that's a, a great way to um, uh, explain what was happening and, and the difficult subjects that they were indeed discussing. And it was interracial. And um, that is uh, not always something um, you might see in the South in, in that particular era. And so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it is a very it's sort of inspirational um, thing to understand. But that takes us back to kind of the very beginning, too, when you talked about not knowing about Lillian. You know, what, what would it have done if we knew about her in those gatherings and what she was doing here? Because the narrative that we're taught, y'all are both from the South, right? Right. Yeah, the narrative we're taught in the South is basically that, well, there were the outsiders who came in to help during the Civil Rights Movement, right? We don't hear about Virginia Durr or her or Dorothy, I think it's Dorothy Tillis, I don't remember her name, but any of these individuals who were doing things like this or Joan Browning. And especially somebody like Lillian, who was having people up here to have these conversations and to enact change. So what would that have done for us when we were younger before we got to grad school, right? It's something I think about all the time. So when you're not cataloging, because obviously you teach courses too, mm -hmm. and you obviously teach Lillian Smith in those courses, I assume. Am I right about that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> how do you incorporate Lillian Smith's work into your classrooms and your own scholarship? I think the classroom is kind of the more important question for me because I'm, I'm curious how undergrads react to her. Um, well, I'll start. So uh, I, I always incorporate Killers of the Dream. It's, it's one of my favorite books. Um, I think it is critical, especially for students who want to study um, the South and have an understanding of it. I think that book um, is, it's, it's a critical piece. Um, especially for students who may not be from the South, but even Southerners, and, and just to correct, I'm not a Southerner by birth, I'm a Southerner by choice. Um, but even um, uh, folks who've grown up in the South are still trying to make sense of the past. And so using that book in class is incredibly um, uh, beneficial. But the other thing that we have seen, or, or that I have seen from both undergraduates and graduates is they want to write about Lillian Smith. And so, um, for example, uh, one of the students that we um, have brought up here a few times uh, wrote her, her big sort of seminar paper on the camp, um, what happened at the camp, as best as she could because the records are not always complete, um, but talked about you know trying to get a sense of understanding of what occurred at the camp, what the girls might have learned, the connections they made, um, and the relationships they had with Lillian Smith after. Um, uh, they had stopped, you know, attending or had, had become adults. Um, I have another student who wrote, um, again, a, a seminar paper on um, what it meant to be a white woman working on racial activism in the South, and, and she just won um, our department's big graduate paper award for it. It was it was wonderful, but the title was the Southern Woman's Toolkit, and. It was just a great way to look at the challenges they faced, the places where they needed to step back um, and allow women of color, um, African-American women, to um, take the lead role uh, in terms of civil rights activism, but also where they needed to, to step up and, and be allies. And so, um, so it comes up constantly. Um, and I don't, you know, some of it I wonder if it's because of my own deep interest and admiration that that, that inspires them. I'd like to think I'm inspiring them. Um, so that's, it, it comes up a lot. Um, and it's it's something that, especially for undergrads, because I didn't get any of this as an undergrad. Again, we didn't know about Lillian Smith until graduate school. This is something I want to expose them to earlier. 
um, so that they uh, uh, understand it, especially if they're from Georgia. It's such an important figure in Georgia history. So. Yeah, that's a whole other discussion. One of the yeah. things I want to do is, is work up a curriculum for her so to actually get her into some kind of curriculum with P12 before they even get to, you know, mm -hmm. college because she's part of the civil rights movement. That's one of the Georgia standards, right? You have to teach the civil rights movement. And her intimate connection with King, I think, is is very, very important. Absolutely. And especially his praise of her and various things, too. So how do you incorporate her into your class, Julia? So at the University of Alabama, you know, my classes, I teach survey courses and I do introduce her in those courses when we talk about the civil rights movement, but I teach public history courses um, and I use this project as kind of a case study and then bring students up when, when we can. The last time we could do that is before the pandemic. Um, but yeah, so I teach this also as um, thinking about the space as a historic site where the buildings are primary sources, mm -hmm. not to mention all the material culture, right? And so I think about it more from kind of a preservation um, and stewardship and even kind of custodial point of view, mm -hmm. as public historians often do. Yeah. Uh, but, but of course, in doing that, they read Lillian Smith and we talk about sort of, you know, the historical import of her work and who she was. And I, and I think that that's... Um, because Julie and I have these different backgrounds um, in terms of what we studied um, um, in our, our graduate school and, and all of that, I think it's this perfect combination of pulling in the items, the stuff that I don't know that much about, which is this larger public history. I mean, I have a little bit of a background in public history, but not anything near what Julia has. And so bringing in that element of material culture and understanding this as a space, um, also then bringing in sort of the this other historic element of, of gender and sexuality and, um, and and civil rights activism. So it's like this perfect blending, um, I think, in many ways. Um, and it's a labor of love for us. You know, we we do this on our own time. We, we love coming up here and um, we look forward to it. It's a, it's a reunion for both of us <laughs> every year. But you say that one of the things you keep saying, too, is space. And that's one thing that I think about a lot, too. And I don't have theoretical grounding in space, but there's something about space and place, right? Mm -hmm. I think about it when I worked at the Ernest Gaines Center and going to the place where he grew up and writes about, right? And where he's now buried because he passed mm -hmm. away, but the cemetery, right? Who's crossed this space? Who's walked in this place? Who's been in this place? And when you're up here, you see the letters of who's been up here and you think about who's been up here. There have been an insane amount of illustrious people who have been to this space, who have occupied this space. Mm -hmm who have maybe, when this was still a cabin for girls, mm -hmm. you know, and split down the middle, stayed in these cabins, who gathered in the common room and talked. And before events such as the student sit-ins, right, in Atlanta, I mean, all those types of things. I kind of think about that. And then, of course, with her being buried up here and all those other things, too, but space is important and what we take away from it. Mm -hmm. So thinking about all of this, what is one thing that you want our listeners to take away about Lillian and her legacy? That's the easy question. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, it's a hard question because there is so much. So um, uh, one of the things that I would like um, listeners to take away is that Lillian Smith is part of this larger um, uh, ecological kind of intellectual system out here. Um, and that it is um, it incorporates all these elements, but the family element, to use um, what Julia said, the kinship, 
um, and the networks. I think that's something to think about is, is how important not just Lillian is, but the other women who resided here. Um, not to diminish um, um, the brothers by any stretch, but to think about um, this as a space that was um, very sort of woman-centric um, and a space of, of creativity for whether it was Esther, Annie Glory, or, or um, Well, even uh, think about, I don't know much about Maud, but Frank's wife, Maud. Yeah. I mean, she would have been down there at that house. Yeah, so that, that to me is one thing that I think is a good takeaway. I'm, I'm yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I can add to that because I think that's true. I mean, even, and I also want to um, bring Nancy Smith-Fichter into mm -hmm. the conversation who, you know, this place has been just in conversations with her as a resident here, learning how important this space was to her. I mean, I remember her telling me that she used Esther's Cottage to choreograph her dances, for example, you know, in her early days. Um, and so just thinking about the ways that this space has provided um, a nurturing kind of environment, built and natural environment for people to sort of grow beyond what this region might have created within them. I think that is, to me, incredible. And so I would encourage, here's what I would want people to take away, that this is still a living space because of you and the Piedmont College that runs this as a residency space. I would want people to support that and also to imagine themselves as custodians of this place when they do come here um, and continue to preserve the space. Yeah. And just to, just to say, we have been doing programs up here. One of the last, actually last week when we we're recording this, we did a professional development program for educators. Mm -hmm. So that legacy is being continued. And if you would like to support those programs, you can reach out to us at lescenter at piedmont.edu or go to our website, just search for Lillian E. Smith Center Piedmont University will pop up. So thank you for joining us today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag DopeWithLime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.